You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. As we come to Acts chapter 8 this morning, we come to one of the real turning points in the Book of Acts, and really one of the turning points in God's great plan of the ages. You could say that from Acts chapter 7 all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the focus has been on God's work in and through Israel. Now, I'm generalizing to some great extent. I could list you plenty of exceptions in that and how the vision was always to go beyond Israel into the uttermost parts of the earth. That was always the vision, but, but it was never really aggressively carried forth into practice until what we begin with right here in Acts chapter 8. You see, with the martyrdom of Stephen, which we studied last time in Acts chapter 7, something changes in the church. Something changes among these followers of Jesus. And what changes most pointedly is that they get scattered. Let's take a look at it, starting now at verse 1, Acts chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. The his there is the death of Stephen. That's in all in Acts chapter 7. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, this fellow that's mentioned here in verse 1, Saul, this is a man named Saul of Tarsus, who was mentioned at the end of Acts chapter 7. We know him uh, from a lot in the book of Acts and later on in the Bible, He's a man who wrote so many of the letters of the New Testament. We know him more from his Roman name, Paul. And we often call him Paul the Apostle because he was a great apostle of the early church. But at this point, he's known more by his Hebrew name, Saul of Tarsus. But later on, after his conversion, and I don't mean to spoil the story for anybody to ruin the anticipation. I'll just spoil it for you. Here's a spoiler. This guy, Saul, he's going to get converted. God's going to get a hold of him. He's going to have his life profoundly changed by Jesus Christ. And this man who is such a hater of Jesus and a hater of the followers of Jesus, he's going to become a tremendous lover of Jesus and servant of Jesus and friend to the followers of Jesus Christ. Well, later on, when he looked back on these years, but Paul says that he was so zealous in his religious faith that he persecuted the church and his supervision of the execution of Stephen was just one example of this persecution. It says right there in verse 1 that he was consenting to his death. Consenting is a little weak, to tell you the truth. The idea of consenting almost sounds like passive. No, no, no. The ancient Greek word that's translated consenting there has much more the idea of to approve of, to be pleased with, to, to be actively supporting. Some people are very reluctant persecutors, but Saul wasn't one of those. Saul took pleasure in his persecution of Christians. And so in those days, it says right there in verse 1, you read it, a great persecution arose against the church. The death of Stephen was just the beginning. The floodgates of persecution were now open against the Christians, and Saul was only one of many persecutors of these early followers of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something. Here's one of these turning points that I spoke to you about in the beginning. This was the first persecution of Christians as a whole. Now, previously in the book of Acts, 
The apostles had been persecuted, right? Do you remember reading about that? When the apostles were brought before the council and they were told no longer to preach in the name of Jesus and they were beaten because they refused to say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Oh, oh, yes, the apostles had been persecuted before, but never before this had Christians in general been persecuted. But now it begins. Now common believers, not just leaders, not just prominent people in the church, but no, regular Christians, they're being persecuted. They're being attacked. They're being beaten. And in some cases, they're being killed. Therefore, what's the reaction? Verse 1, they were scattered throughout the regions. Now the Christians were forced to do what before they had been reluctant to do, to get the message of Jesus out to the surrounding regions. This is one of the great themes of the book of Acts. And something I'm going to have to dwell on in some length later on. I don't have time for it this morning, but I'll just mention it. Listen. God told the followers of Jesus. Jesus told them, I want you to go out into all the earth and make disciples. Right? Now, to be honest, in the beginning, through seven chapters of the book of Acts, they didn't do it. They stayed right there in Jerusalem. And so you know what happened? Well, it just got forced upon them to go out, right? They weren't purposeful missionaries. They were reluctant missionaries. And they got spread out quite against their will. And it says right there that they were scattered. Now, I have it on a good authority that there are two different Greek words in the ancient Greek language for scattered. One of them means to just sort of scatter something to the wind, scatter it so it disappears, like you would scatter somebody's ashes, right? And the idea is that it just absorbs and it disappears. That's one word for scattered. It's not the word that's used here. Here in verse 1, the word for scattered is the word you would use for scattering seeds, for sowing seeds, where you scatter something, but it's for the purpose of distribution. It's for the purpose of spreading it. And that's exactly what God was doing with the church. He was scattering these Christians. You see, this is the idea that Jesus told his disciples to look beyond Jerusalem and to bring the gospel to Judea and Samaria and the whole world. But, but to this point, the followers of Jesus had not yet done it. But now they did it. Yes, they did it reluctantly. Yes, they did it under pressure, but they did it. This is a reminder to us of the will of God, right? I mean, when God tells us to do something, aren't we just better off doing it? I don't want to characterize all of the work of God this way, but sometimes it works like this, right? God says, look, you can do it the easier way or you can do it the harder way, right? Obey me, do it out. Just obey me on your own initiative. Just follow me and look to me for the strength and obey me. Or I'll box you in to where you kind of have to obey me, right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I bet there's an awful lot of people in this room. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? God told you to do something, you didn't do it, and lo and behold, you found out later you had to do it, right? Well, this is exactly the situation. So they're scattered, verse 2, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and make great lamentation over him. I like that Luke includes this, verse 2, in the narrative. You know why? Because he's letting us know that not all the Jewish people had this animosity against Christians. 
Oh, yes, there were some who did. And there were some Saul of Tarsus out there who were very energetic. There were some people like on the council, of the Sanhedrin, who were very much against the Christian. But he's letting us know with verse 2, no, nobody should think for a moment that every individual Jewish person was against the Christians. No, no, not at all. There were some devout men who cared deeply and who gave Stephen a dignified burial. Verse 3, but as for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering every home, every house, and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, if you look at it there in verse 3, it says that he made havoc. That word havoc, it uses an ancient Greek word that could refer to an army destroying a city. It could refer to a wild animal tearing in at its meat. The idea there is of a vicious, conquering attack. Saul viciously attacked Christians, including women. And by the way, the ancient verb tense of that grammar means that he kept on attacking them. It wasn't just a one-time thing, but he started it and he continued it. He kept on ravaging the church. Now, I think back to this man, Saul of Tarsus. Most of us, we know him by his Roman name, Paul. He came later to deeply regret this persecution of the church. Now, can you just enter into his mind for a moment right here? Right now, as of Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Saul of Tarsus is utterly convinced that he's serving God and pleasing God by attacking the Christians. By the way, Jesus said that that day would come. Jesus warned his disciples that the day would come that those who persecute you think that they're doing God a favor. And that was exactly the situation with Saul of Tarsus. He thought that he was pleasing God, that he was honoring God, that God was pleased with him for the way that he so viciously went after Christians, that he arrested them, that he beat them, that that, that he killed some of them. Now, he totally thought that he was pleasing God. But later on, when he came to faith in Jesus Christ, he deeply deeply regretted what he had done before. So much so that later on he would write this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. He said this, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now friends, this was decades after Paul's conversion. He had been a Christian a long time, and you'd almost want to say to him, Oh, Paul, don't you know that you're forgiven? Don't you know that the blood of Jesus has covered even those sins? And I think if you were to say that to Paul, he'd look at you, maybe tears welling up in his eyes, and he would say, I know, but I persecuted the church of God. I know I'm forgiven, but yet still to this day, I so deeply regret what I did. Matter of fact, if I could give you a little bit of insight into this, I I think there's a reason why he regretted it so deeply. In Acts chapter 26, verse 11, later on describing what he did, this is what Paul said. He said, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You know, there's a line in there that I wonder, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm psychoanalyzing just a little bit, but, but follow me with this. It says there that Saul of Tarsus and his persecution of Christians compelled them to blaspheme. In other words, I, I can just see it now. Paul's got a sword at somebody's throat because he killed some of them, did he not? 
He's got a sword at somebody's throat. And he says, renounce Jesus Christ or I'll kill you. Blaspheme Jesus or I'll slit your throat. And you know what? Some of them did. Some of them did. Some of them out of fear. Some of them out of panic. Some of them out of the, the all everything in the moment. They blasphemed Jesus because it says right there, Acts 26, 11, that he compelled them to blaspheme. Now, I think about that and how Paul would be left awake at night thinking about those especially that he had compelled to blaspheme. They wondered, did, did they ever repent? Did they ever come back to the Lord? Did I push them away from Jesus forever? I think in some ways that would have been even more haunting to Paul than to think about those that he actually killed, those that he compelled to blaspheme. You know, it makes me think about it, too, for individual lives here. You know, how many times we sin and we know what's wrong, and later on we tremendously regret that we sinned? I mean, in the moment we think it's okay, right? In the moment we might even be thinking that God is allowing it or that God smiles upon it. But friends, I would just ask you to think right now in your life, because if I'm speaking to this many people, if I'm speaking to this many people, there's there's at least one or two here this morning. You're, you're right now in the midst of some kind of sin that you're going to deeply, deeply regret later on in your life. As much as Saul of Tarsus later regretted what he did. And can I say... The answer for you now is to repent. Now. Don't delay it another time. Don't think that you can, well, I'll do it later. I'll get it right with God later. I can always get it right with later. I can sin now and ask for forgiveness later. No. No. Don't think that way. If you could only step into the future right now, see five years, ten years, fifteen years from now, how deeply, how profoundly you will regret that you went one day longer in the sin that you're now in or, or that you stepped into the sin that you're currently now being tempted by. Don't deceive yourselves, friend. Sin is sin for a purpose. Do you understand that God is not up in heaven just making a list of all the things that people enjoy and then sort of saying, no, that's bad. They can't do that. It's sin because it harms us. It's sin because it takes away from the glory of God and from our own imitation of God's glory, our own reflection of it. it nevertheless, let's go on here. You see it in verse 4. It says, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. That was the result. The end result of it all was for the glory of God because the persecution simply served to spread the message that they didn't go as formal preachers, but, but as accidental missionaries. Isn't that wonderful? They, they spread them out and made them accidental missionaries all over the regions of Judea and Samaria. Once it was just sort of like a centralized infection, so to speak, right there in Jerusalem, right? Now it's spread throughout the whole region and Christianity, again, so to speak, can infect so many other people. I've heard a story and to tell you the truth, I don't know if it's actually true, but it's just what I've heard. It may very well be true, but, but I, I just want to say that because I haven't researched it myself independently. 
But in the days of early communist China, when they were very concerned about Christians there in China, because for many, many decades, Christians had been doing a big work there as missionaries in China. And so when the communists took over, the first thing that they did was they kicked out all the missionaries. But of course, there were still many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of Chinese Christians. And this was of great concern to the communist authorities. So what are we going to do with all these Christians? And I've heard it said that some of the communist authorities got together and they decided, well, what are we going to do? Well, listen, one thing we know about these Christians, one of them said, is that they love to associate together. They just love to be together. I don't know what they call it. They call it fellowship. They call it church. But they love to be together. So they said, well, I know what we'll do. Let's spread out all the Christians over China. Let's take them from these centralized places and let's distribute them over the country. And again, I don't know this to be verified, but this is what I've heard happen. And what it did was they sent them out as accidental missionaries all over the country. Where today, decades after most Western missionaries were forced to leave China, now there are estimates up there being up to a hundred million Christians in China. Isn't that remarkable? Same principle though, right? You send them out not as deliberate missionaries, but it's accidental. They go out and they live their Christian life. They, they talk to other people about the good news of Jesus Christ. And it spreads all throughout the land. That's exactly what was happening right there in Acts chapter 8. I, I really like what Charles Spurgeon said along these lines. He said this. He said, in every church where there is really the power of the Spirit of God, the Lord will cause it to be spread abroad, more or less. He will never, he never means that a church should be like a nut shut up in a shell, nor like an ointment enclosed in a box. The precious perfume of the gospel must be poured forth to sweeten the air. Well, friends, I would say this. If we don't do it by our own choice, God will find it a way to do it apart from our choice. Will he not? This is just his way. So can I say, let's get on board with spreading the gospel in our own community and beyond, right? Don't we like living here in Santa Barbara, right? So Lord, we'll be committed to spreading out your gospel and going forth as you please, as you send us, so that you don't have to forcibly remove us from here. This is what happened here in Jerusalem. Well, now they're being spread out. Look at it here now in verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now, Philip was a man very much like Stephen. He was one of those seven chosen to minister to the practical needs of the widows there in the early church. And this was in Acts chapter 6. He was one of those who was forced to flee the persecution, and he ended up in a place called Samaria. Now, I'm not going to give you the whole background on Samaria. I just want to give you the most important thing for you to know about Samaria. Samaria was filled with Samaritans. (laughs) And Jewish people and Samaritans in general did not like each other at all. There was a lot of, I'll just say it, in the ancient world, there was a lot of hatred, there was a lot of prejudice between Jews and Samaritans. 
For example, that's what made Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan so shocking to his listeners, right? The good Samaritan. I mean, that's like saying the good, wicked person. That's how it would sound in the ears of a Jewish person. But Jesus wanted it to startle him that way. To say, listen, the, the, the priest, the, the, the Levite, they passed this needy man by. But the good Samaritan, he helped him. That's why it was so shocking when Jesus passed through Samaria and he spoke to a woman who was at a well right there in Samaria, right? When Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman. Again, there was a long uh, standing, deeply seated animosity between most Jewish people and most Samaritan people of that day. So what did, uh, what did uh, Philip do? He went down there and it says that he preached Christ to them. Remarkable, isn't it? He overlooked his prejudices. He overlooked what his culture thought. And he said, these are people who need Jesus. That's what it says in verse 5. He preached Christ to them. That's the first recorded preaching of Jesus, who he is and what he did for us outside of Jerusalem and Judea. The message now was beginning to spread. And if I could say, I'm just a little bit fascinated by that phrase that it said that he preached Christ to them. He preached to them about Jesus. I mean, isn't that what we should be doing? Not primarily preaching about complicated doctrines, not primarily preaching about social transformation, not primarily preaching about a dozen other topics which are good and they have their place. But the first and most important message that anybody needs to hear is about Jesus, who he is and what he did for them, especially what he did on the cross. I don't know about you, but I was so struck about it regarding worship time that we just had, right? That song, when I survey the wondrous cross. How about that line from it again? Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Friends, isn't that the message of Jesus right there? His wounds, what he did on the cross, his wounds paid my ransom. Isn't that what what Philip would have preached there in Samaria? Hey, Samaritans, his wounds paid your ransom. Your debt before God, your sin, what, what you owe before God, what you're lacking before him in every way, his wounds paid for it. Who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross, that's what it means to preach Christ before this crowd. Now, when Christ is faithful, faithfully preached, God does things. And that's what we see here in verse 6. It says that they were also hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Philip came presenting the gospel with signs and wonders following that presentation of the gospel in a very impressive confirmation. And when they found Jesus, I love what it says there in verse 8, that there was great joy in that city. A great harvest was happening there in that city of Samaria. Now, it reminds me of something that happened when Jesus was in Samaria. We're given this very interesting situation in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, where Jesus is passing through Samaria and he has this exchange with the woman at the well. Maybe you remember that. If not, make a note of it and read it later on. John chapter 4, when Jesus speaks with the woman at the well. That all happens in Samaria. Well, I just want you to know that after Jesus spoke with the woman at the well, 
that he spoke to his disciples and he sent them out to go talk about Jesus, who he is and what he would do throughout all the area there of that region of Samaria. Well, we don't read that there was any great harvest of souls there in the days of Jesus. But you know what Jesus was doing? Planting seeds. Now, Philip is bringing in the harvest. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus and his disciples planted the seed. Now, Philip brings in the harvest. Now, by the way, I think it's important to bring up because there are some people who don't like the ministry of planting seeds. They only want to reap the harvest. I don't blame them, right? Wouldn't you rather reap a harvest than plant a seed? Wouldn't you rather lead somebody to the Lord and bring somebody to faith in Jesus than than just plant seeds? I kind of would. But listen, that's not in our control, is it? And if Jesus was pleased with and effective in the ministry of planting seeds, sometimes that's exactly what God gives us to do. And that's what they did, and it was very effective. But but the end result of it, it's found there in verse 8. I love that phrase. It says that there was great joy in that city. Now, that great joy came from a couple places. Isn't it interesting how there was great joy in that city, but, but because there had been great sorrow in Jerusalem, right? The sorrow in Jerusalem was the persecution that came upon the Christians. Can't you just see Christians crying out to the Lord? Oh, God, why are you allowing this persecution? What's going on, God? Maybe you don't like us anymore. He goes, listen, I know that there's going to be sorrow in Jerusalem for a season. But if you could only see the great joy that there's going to be in that city of the Samaritans. Great sorrow in Jerusalem, but great joy in that city. But it also came from the reality of spiritual power. Did you see it there in verses 7 and 8? It says, For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. I mean, there was a reality of spiritual power there. And friends, when spiritual power is made real in front of people, that brings great joy. But then finally, I would say especially, that great joy came as Philip preached Christ to them. That's the message that brings great joy. To be able to tell somebody, your sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. Your life is set free. That that, that sin, that habit that once dominated your life, Jesus Christ has the power to set you free from that. Jesus Christ has the power to bring joy into your life, joy into this city that wasn't known there before. I have to say, as I was reading and studying and praying over that, that that line really struck me. That there was great joy in the city. You know why? Because I think of our city. You would think that here in Santa Barbara, it's the happiest place on earth, right? I mean, look at where we live. It's America's Riviera. One of the most beautiful and privileged places just on the, on the, on the, the West Coast. What a blessed place we live in, right? We like it. We really do. And you would think that it's like, well, as I said, happiest place on earth. You scratch just a little bit beneath the surface and there's a profound sadness in the hearts and lives of so many, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about because that's where you're at right now. 
some of you know what I'm talking about because you have been there, but, but in just God has done something wonderful in your life. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because so many dear people close to you, there is a profound sadness in their life. Now think about that line in verse 8. I can't get it out of my mind. There was joy in the city. Wouldn't you love to see Jesus bring more joy to our city? I sure would. Now, I would see, love to see more people set free from a sadness that seems to beset them. And listen, all I can say is that joy is found. It's found in the reality of spiritual power and it's found that that joy is found again in the reality of spiritual power and in preaching Christ to people. That's where people are set free. It's going on now. Verse nine. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they should all give heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Very interesting, this man named Simon. I hate to break it to you, but we're not going to finish the story of Simon this week. We're going to have to get more into the story of Simon next week. Because we're going to have ended off here at verse 17. But I do just want to tell you this. This man, Simon, was some sort of sorcerer, some sort of magician. And he had a hold on the people of that particular city in Samaria. They believed him. They believed him so much so that they didn't believe that Simon had the power of God. Do you see it in verse 10? They said of him, this man is the great power of God. By the way, I read that and that sort of sets off an alarm in my mind. It's always alarming when Christians think such things about a Christian leader or personality. And it's always alarming. It's terrifying when a Christian leader or personality is trying to cultivate the idea in you that I am the great power of God. I don't know what to do about it in our present age, folks. I really don't. But there's something about the whole dynamic and, and power of Christian celebrity that just needs to be transformed. I don't know if I have the answers for it. And listen, I rejoice as much as anybody when God really raises up a godly man or woman to do his work. But, but we need to allow that to happen by doing everything we can to push away the idea of the Christian celebrity, of any kind of implication that this man or this woman is the great power of God. No, never. God can use a person or can use them in some way or another, but, but never in the sense of them having this idea of Simon had that he is the great power of God. In any way, he previously practiced sorcery, and verse 11 says that they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries. But verse 12 is great. When they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ... Those who were previously astonished by Simon and his sorceries, now they believed Philip when he preached. 
He brought the message of the gospel. And verse 12 tells us that they believed it. And then verse 13 tells us that they proclaimed their belief by being baptized. But by the way, if they believed and Philip baptized them, it would certainly seem to indicate that their faith was sincere, right? That that Philip looked at them and said, these are genuine believers. We're going to baptize them and that they were truly born again. They believed Philip. They believed what he said about the kingdom of God and about the gospel of Jesus. But verse 13 also tells us that they were amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Simon was convinced by Philip's preaching himself. Simon, this man who had been the sorcerer, the magician, he looked at the reality of spiritual power that Philip had himself, and he said, I want that as well. And so he was baptized. He continued with Philip. He became a follower of Philip in his ministry. Now, just sort of uh, put that on hold, because next week we're going to talk more about this Simon fellow. But let's conclude now with these last four verses, starting at verse 14 through 17, about how the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. It says... Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So, Peter and John, as sort of apostolic delegates, they go there and they see this work that was going on in Samaria. Now, I bet two things happened when Peter and John saw this. They saw all these people had come to faith in Jesus. They saw all these people had been baptized and they saw that no apostle was there doing the work, right? Who was it? It was Philip. Just one of the guys, one of the young leaders of the church, not a man who was recognized as a former apostle or anything like that. They looked at this guy, Philip, and they must have thought two things. First of all, they thought, God doesn't need to do all his work through us apostles, does he, right? He's doing a pretty good work through this man, Philip. That must have pleased them. But then just to see all the converts, all the people who come to Christ, they must have been very, very pleased to see this. But then they noticed something. They noticed that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon these people. There was some sort of subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit that these Samaritan believers did not know until the apostles came and ministered to them. So what did they do? They laid hands on them. And these people were empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. Now listen, when you read through the New Testament, you see that people receive gifts and graces from the Holy Spirit in many different ways. There is no one way. Sometimes people receive something powerful from the Holy Spirit while somebody's preaching. Sometimes they receive it in the context of people praying and just ministering unto God. Sometimes they receive it as hands are laid upon them. Sometimes they receive it just in an unusual way altogether, and they are just singularly by themselves. There is no one way, but I will tell you this. One of the precious ways given to us is for people to lay hands one on another in an act of sympathy, in an act of identification, in an act of love, and to pray for them to receive from the Holy Spirit. Did you know that's what we do up front here with the prayer team, right? This is the prayer team. There's nothing, I'll say this, there's nothing magical about the prayer team, is there? Listen, these are just regular people. They're people walking with the Lord and have the same struggles that you might have. 
But there are people who in faith will love you and will lay their hands on your shoulder and pray for you in faith that you would receive what you need to receive from God, whatever your particular need is. I'm not saying that's the only way that God could minister to your need. Did you know, I don't want to blow your mind with this, but did you know that if you want prayer, you could turn to the person next to you and ask them to pray for you? Shocking. But it's true. You could do that. I say, well, they're not officially sanctioned as a member of the prayer team. But no, really, you could do that. But listen, there is something wonderful about having the faith to come forward, about having the, the, the faith to make that connection with somebody up here and to say, listen, I simply want somebody to pray for my need and to lay a loving hand on my shoulder and pray for me. It's not the only place where prayer ministry goes on at this church, but it's a precious place, and I'm happy that we do it. Well, they, they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The fact that these Christians received the Holy Spirit as a subsequent experience to their salvation, this is something that should tell us that we need to keep on receiving the Holy Spirit in our own lives. People ask, well, why didn't they receive the Holy Spirit when they believed? Friends, I believe that they did receive the Holy Spirit when they believed. But God had simply more to give them in the Holy Spirit as he does for us. Friends, don't you believe that God has more to give you from his Holy Spirit? I do. I, I look upon a bunch of wonderful faces here this morning, but on every face I could say, the Holy Spirit has more work to do in and through your life. Isn't that true of each and every one of us? So don't we need this in our lives? Don't we need to be open to and receiving the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst? We need to receive the Holy Spirit. Can I just ask you to make one comparison in your mind here? What would be the opposite to receiving the Holy Spirit? The opposite, I guess, would be rejecting the Holy Spirit. I think that's bad, don't you? Rejecting the Holy Spirit, bad. Receiving the Holy Spirit, good. Well, should we not be this morning, a group of people say, Lord, we want to receive everything that the Holy Spirit has for us. And for some of you, when we give the invitation for people to come up for the team, you're going to want somebody to lay a loving hand on your shoulder and to pray for you for that. But for all of us, we can receive it right now, right? So let's pray. Let's prepare our heart for some more time of worship. And let's just come before the Lord and receive everything that he has. For